Well, good morning. Welcome to Big Valley Grace. And for those of you who are online, special welcome to you. Thanks for joining us on this special, special day. Man, it's good to have air conditioning. Praise God for the gift of air conditioning, right? My goodness. Yeah, it was hot last night. Let me tell you, it was hot. Well, a couple things. Uh, we, for those of you who are regular attenders and are members, uh, this last week we had an opportunity to approve our budget for our operating budget for this next year. And it was overwhelmingly approved. I appreciate your support and your prayers and think we're grateful for you. And uh, you make it possible for ministry to be able to flow out of this place far beyond the walls of this church. So just uh, that's good news and praise, we're praising God for it. This week, on Tuesday, we celebrate the 247th anniversary of our declaration of independence away from England and to establish a government uh, of the people, by the people, and for the people. And I just want to give you maybe just a few tips that might help you uh, uh, on Tuesday. For those of you who are are parents and have children, and those of you who are grandparents and you'll begin together as a family, it is good to recall uh, the past. And we take so much for granted, don't we? Uh, The freedoms that we enjoy uh, is a gift from God, but it came, not all freedom is free, right? It came at an incredible, incredible price. And 247 years ago, 56 men met in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and they drafted a declaration to England as to their desire to be a government of themselves. And the reason was because of the oppression that they had felt uh, from England. In fact, most of the 56 men who signed this constitution, they didn't want to uh, separate from England. They wanted England to change. And they, they saw themselves not as English citizens. I mean, they saw themselves as English citizens, but they felt like they were being treated as English slaves, that they existed for the pleasure of the English government. And the taxation and the oppression that they felt for over a year and a half to two years, finally they drew a line and said, you know, as, as a people, we need to be submissive to God, but the government leaders need to be submissive to God too. And a government that's under God and recognizes its leadership, that's the government that we need to have. And they felt that King George and others uh, were above the law, not within the law. And so they drafted a Declaration of Independence to declare what they believe to be absolutely, absolutely true. And some of these words that we see here are changing today. And it would be good just to rehearse some of these. This is just a small portion of the declaration. It's really not that lengthy, but it would be good to remind, particularly the young ones that are growing up, if we don't teach them, who will? Let me just go through some of this with you. We, and that represents 13 colonies, over 2 million people. 56 people were selected from the 13 colonies to be there in that day. So those 56 men are in agreement with every word that's up here. And we say we hold these truths, and the truth is objective truth, not subjective truth. You understand the difference between that? Because today, it's often thought as, well, I have my own truth, you have your truth. What's true for you may not be true for me. That's not what these men are talking about. They're talking about an objective truth that is true at all time, in all places, in all cultures, everywhere. This is absolutely, absolutely true because God is true. Jesus said, I'm the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And so we hold these truths. What truths? Well, they're self-evident. It is obvious to all, not just to those of us in the America, but in Europe and any other place. These things are absolutely true. It's obvious to all that all men are created equal. That's the first time in all of human history that a government formed around that principle. 
that changed the course of history. Because until that statement was made, slavery was in every culture, in every place, in the Americas with the Aztec and the Incas and every, everywhere, slavery was, an, it was commonplace. This was a big issue. Most of the men were vehemently against it. There were three states that were wrestling with this. But this started something that changed the course of history. And less than 100 years later, 350,000 men willingly, not eagerly, but willingly, stood in the gap and said, well, this needs to change in our country. And 350,000 men gave their lives in battlefields all throughout the United States so that men and women might be free and slavery would be forever ended in our country. Slavery still exists in places around the world today. But those 56 men said these truths are self-evident that all men have equal dignity and worth. All men are precious before God. And we're not talking about not the male species, but mankind, all humanity, young and old, in every form and shape, has worth and value as made in the image of God. As a result of that, <clears throat> they're endowed and given by the Creator, recognizing that it's not we who made us, it's God who made us. We're the sheep of His pasture. And He has given us something special. And He has endowed every human being with life. We ought not take another person's life. That's what it says life is precious. Life should be defended and protected. And government exists to defend and protect life. God has endowed liberty, the ability to choose, to be able to go and to freely move and to have peace. That's a gift from God. And the pursuit of happiness does not mean that we pursue pleasure and that we keep chasing after pleasure, but that God has given us, and he's endowed with us the desire to, to live peaceful and orderly lives. That's what that phrase is referring to. And government exists to protect those things. And when you look at the, um, ten, the, first, uh, the Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments, enumerate what those rights are. The, the, we all have the right to be able to speak freely. To each have different opinions. And not, and not to be persecuted for it. We have the right to freedom. It's a gift from God that we should be able to assemble and to be able to go wherever we would want to go, to choose to, go, to move from one state to the next. That, that's a freedom that God has given to us. That's a freedom that all mankind should have. That we should have the freedom to protect ourselves, to protect our homes, our families, and our homeland. That's a freedom that God has given to us all. So you, I'm not, I could go through this a whole, a whole bit, right? But folks, take time. <clears throat> We assume too much. And we're not, and when we talk about freedom, it's, it's not a freedom to do what we want, it's a freedom to do what we ought. To do that which is right and what is good is a blessing to others. And nothing that we have, even your birthday gifts, right? When you receive a birthday gift, it's free to you, but it costs somebody something. And the freedoms that we have today came at a great price. 42 million men and women have stood in the gap. A million uh, men and women gave their lives so that you and I might be free. And every generation has had to fight to ensure that these things remain true for us because there's all sorts of evil that wants to take all of these things away and to oppress. That is the nature of mankind, the nature of sin is to oppress and to rob freedom. So let's go into this 4th of July with Thanksgiving. Let's help our young people, our, our teenagers and others 
understand that what we are enjoying today, the barbecues we have, it's not about barbecue. These men were willing to sacrifice their lives, their fortunes, and their honor so that you and I might enjoy this. Because those 56 men never saw what we enjoy today. Everyone, for the most part, every one of them ended their life in tragedy. They, lo they lost everything. They lost their homes. Many of them lost their children. Some of them lost their lives. Some of them were tortured and put to death by the British because when they signed that document, they were saying, here I am, I'm ready to be counted. And they did that not for themselves, but for their families and all who would follow. It's a gift from God at a great cost. Let's pray and let's thank the Lord. Lord, I thank you for the privilege and opportunity we have even today to be able to stand here and to be able to speak freely. Or this is a gift that you've given where we can be able to meet together like this un, un, unhindered. We're grateful, Lord, for the ability that we have to even privilege to vote. And Lord, we would pray that you would raise up a generation of righteous men and women who would be able to, who fear you and who have wisdom and discernment and would leave righteously. And Lord, for those men and women that are in high places today that are serving themselves, it's all about them and the power that they have. Lord, we would pray that you would take them out and take them down and you would raise up in their midst better men, better women who love you with all of their heart. And that, Father, that uh, men really seek you above all things. Lord, would you give us such leadership because it would bless our whole nation, Lord, and such things would exist. So Lord, we wait upon you. Our trust is in you. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Sorry to get so preachy. <laughs> anyway, praise God, right, for what, we, for what God has given to us. <clears throat> well, take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 11. We're going to be looking at verses 37 through 54 uh, today. And for those of you that are new, and, and maybe you're, you're just beginning to attend Big Valley Grace, and if you're online, we've been going through the series throughout the book of Luke, and we're working through it about two chapters a week. We will complete this at the end of August, and then in September, we start a whole new series. And we have various teaching pastors, I'm one of them, and so we're given a couple chapters, and we can pick out whatever we would want to teach within those two chapters. And I thought today, 37 through 54 would be most appropriate, because it really speaks to my heart. When you look at the Gospels, from Matthew through John, Jesus had his harshest words for those religious leaders in those days. And he would speak to me, and he would be very, very concerned about the issues of my heart, as well as the things on the outside, but also all the things on the inside. But this should be true for, for all of us. If you're new to the Scriptures, and you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which is the account of Jesus. John writes in John chapter 20. He says, all of these things are written so that you might know that Jesus is the Christ. And I'm writing these things so that you might also believe that Jesus is the Christ. And by believing, you have life in his name. And he says, there are so many other things that could have been written. that I don't think the world could even contain it all, he later says in John 21. And so when you look at these stories in the book of Luke... These things are just little glimpses of Jesus' story, and they've been selected to talk about the, imp the importance of who he is. And in fact, Luke even writes, I'm, I'm writing this letter to you, Theophilus, so that you might know who Jesus truly is, what's real and what's really not real. And so this story is very valuable to us today. It is purposely uh, gifted, uh, given to us today. So we're gonna look at this. We're gonna walk through uh, Luke chapter 11, starting at verse 37. I'm reading for the New American Standard. And then uh, we're going to break it apart. Hopefully you have a study sheet with you. 
And that study sheet is really meant for you to take home. And there's so many verses that we won't be able to cover. But I hope that you'll be able to look at them a little bit later on. So let's look at Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 37. We're going to walk through it together. So Luke writes, Now when he had spoken, the he's referring to Jesus, a Pharisee who is a religious leader asked Jesus to have lunch with him. That was a common thing to do. We'll talk more about that later. And he went in, Jesus went in, he reclined at the table. When the Pharisee, the religious leader, saw it, he was surprised that Jesus had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. And if you have a Bible, that that key word ceremonially, uh, it's different than a typical washing for, you you know, getting your hands clean before you eat something. There's something else that's going on. We'll talk about that in a moment. But the Lord said to him, and interesting how Jesus is direct here. Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but the inside, you, you are full of robbery and wickedness. You foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give that which is within as charity, and then all things are clean for you. There's a word that Jesus used in the, in the Gospels, in fact, and there's a similar passage in Matthew 23, and over 10 different times, Jesus uses the word, starts with an H, what is it? You hypocrite. <laughs> You hypocrite. A hypocrite is an actor, is a pretender. Actors in those days would wear a mask. You're hiding behind the mask. What people see on the outside is not what you really are in the inside. You are a pretender. Your lips profess me, your heart is far from me. This is why Jesus is speaking so harshly to these religious leaders because as he looked at them, he knew what was inside as he also saw what was on the outside. And he says, you are an actor, you are a pretender. And none of us uh, should be should be that. Verse 42, but woe to you Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue. Rue is a a, a plant, a bush, where they pick the leaves, and the leaves have flavor that they can add to food, and every kind of garden herb, and yet you disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees, For you love the chief seats in the synagogue and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. And one of the lawyers, so there's more people sitting around this table than just Jesus and this one Pharisee. So one of the lawyers or scribes said to him and replied, Teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. But he said to him, Woe to you lawyers, you scribes as well. For you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. So you are witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers, because it was they who killed them, and you build their tombs. So for this reason also the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill, and some of them they will persecute. So that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel, he's the first person to be murdered. You'll find that in Genesis chapter 4. To the blood of Zechariah. We don't have the historical account of this. But uh, in Matthew it says Zechariah, son of Berechiah, the one who wrote the, um, the prophetic book in the Old Testament who was killed between the altar and the house of God. Yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves did not enter, and you hindered those who were entering. And so when Jesus left there, 
What did they do afterwards? The scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something that Jesus might say. Let's pray again. Father, I thank you again for the privilege of teaching your word here today. And I pray, Lord, that Lord, it would make sense. You were so critical of the Pharisees and lawyers who had the keys of the kingdom, but they put them on a high shelf that nobody could reach. Lord, may those keys come low today so that we can all reach them. And Lord, that we would have a right view of who you are because they, they had a wrong view. So Father, would you work in us? Lord, there's something you want to do not only in us, but also through us. And we pray, Lord, you would accomplish those purposes for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. So let's break this apart. Let's look at it. If you have your study sheet with you, let's kind of walk through this together and let's just look at the background a little bit. So let's back up to verse 31. It says, now when Jesus had spoken. So what had taken place before this? If you have your Bible, uh, just flip over, and at least for me, it's flipping over. It, this story really starts in, in, in um, Luke chapter 11, verse one. Jesus has a full morning of teaching. And one of the first things that disciples asked Jesus is, Lord, would you teach us how to pray? Jesus always began his morning with prayer. And as he's coming out of his morning time with prayer, the disciples saying, Lord, would you teach us to pray as John the Baptist taught us to pray? And so he begins now teaching about the nature of prayer. And now, and, uh, and in the synagogue, there's a demon that shows up, uh, a man that, who is mute, a demon is cast out. You'll see this in starting verse 14. And the Pharisees are all upset because they think Jesus probably is, is on Satan's side that he also has a demon. That's how he can have power over demons, and Jesus is gonna correct that. And then as you walk through it, they're asking Jesus to show him a sign, to show us who you really are. Would you show us a sign so that we might really understand that you're the Messiah? Like, anybody can feed 5,000 people, right? You know, anybody can make somebody well and blind, you know, who's once blind. Anybody can make them see again, right? As though that was enough signs. And so Jesus is going to talk about how they're an unbelieving generation. So after hearing all of these things, this leader, this Pharisee in this community says, I need to spend more time with Jesus. And so he invites him to dinner, not to have this fun social time, but so that he could spend more time in asking him some serious questions that were arising based upon what he was saying. And this isn't just him, but around these tables are other uh, Pharisees and scribes and lawyers. A scribe was somebody who would rewrite the word of God. They didn't have Xerox machines, and that's kind of what they did for a living. But they, the lawyers also were also writing out how to fulfill the law of God. If you really want to observe the Sabbath, make sure you do all of these things. And over 613 laws were written that people, if you really wanted to be a good Jew, you had to keep all of those things and more that were being written. And Jesus is going to be real critical of that in just a little bit. When they're invited to lunch, this is a little bit more background information. They didn't sit at a table like you and I sit. The, the, the culture of the day was to lean or to lay near a table around what they called triclinium tables. It looked like a big horseshoe. So imagine tables that were long this way and then across the top. <clears throat> the, the, um, the host would sit on this side, on the right side. And the guests of honor would be right next to him. That would have been when Jesus. And then as they move around this table would be the pecking order. So around this, this three-sided table would be all of these various leaders from this community there to ask Jesus, not just to have lunch with him and have a pleasant time, but they're going to grill him on the things that he's been talking about. And the center was open so people could, could serve. So that's the background. It followed a full day of teaching and healing. Jesus was invited to a common meal. 
Uh, this is the early morning meal, uh, somewhere between 10 and noon that they're having this meal. And the other guests are filled full of uh, Pharisees and lawyers. So look at this in verse 37. So when he had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him. He went in and Jesus went in and he reclined at the table. But he did a huge no-no. The host sees this. So verse 38, when the Pharisee saw it, saw this big no-no, he was surprised that Jesus had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. This is a big deal. So you walk into the, the home. Now, don't confuse this again with hygienic cleansing. That's not what this is about. So there was a special place in this home where there would be a bowl, and, if it's in, and quite possibly in that day, I don't know when this really started, but today it's a two-handled cup. And the person coming in would first walk in, carefully pick up the cup, two, maybe as much as two or three pourings over the hand, carefully picking up the other handle, making sure that that's not being corrupted, so they do it with a towel, pour it over two or three more hands, let it drip dry, and now they're ready to sit down. All that symbolized was a declaration that I am pure from this world. I have washed off of my hands the filth of the Gentiles and everything else that is around us. I am good and clean. <laughs> you see the problem? <laughs> you see the problem that's going on and why Jesus confronted this? If you want more information about what was taking place, go to Mark chapter seven. We, don't, we won't turn there right now, but write that down in your notes. Go back and look at Mark chapter seven because the, gen, the disciples did the same thing. And they were taking a lot of heat for it. And so Jesus, knowing this, walks in purposefully, uh, uh, <clears throat> does not participate in that ceremonial cleansing, and he takes his place at the table, and he reclines. And the host is furious. Now what's really cool, as you look through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when you're in the presence of Jesus, there's no such thing as a secret. <laughs> he knows everything and he knows what you're thinking he knows what's in your heart he knows where you were yesterday he knows it all and what you'll see here in verse uh, where am I at verse 39 Jesus speaks right to that the Pharisee the host isn't saying anything he's indignant he's keeping it to himself and right out of the gate Jesus is going to speak and address this hypocrisy that he sees in his host so Jesus did a big no-no. It personally did not ceremonially wash his hands. He did that because he wanted this confrontation. So look at now at Jesus' rebuke of the Pharisee. And there's several rebukes here. And the first one we're going to see in verse 39. So look at verse 39. But to the Lord, but the Lord said to him, again, without any prompting, knowing this guy's heart and thoughts, now you Pharisees, you religious leaders, you're all about cleaning the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you, you are full of robbery and witness. You foolish ones, did not he, the God Father, who made the outside, make the inside also? But give that which is within as charity, then all things are clean for you. What's Jesus saying? He says, boy, you have a great facade going on. If any of you have gone down to um, Universal Studios, you'll see these movie sets. And you'll see all these beautiful buildings, but behind is just a hollow shell. That's what he's saying. That's what a hypocrite is. You look all good on the outside, but you haven't taken care of business on the inside. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus talks about how to pray properly and how to give properly. 
And what he's confronting is this hypocrisy because for them, and this is what 41 is all about. He says, um, give that which is within as charity within all things are clean for you. He says, you don't even give with the right motives. All you're giving is about the applause of men. All your, all, all your prayers are about the pretense of men. You're doing it for show. You don't have a heart for God. What God loves is a cheerful giver. What God loves is a person whose heart is all about, I want to please the Lord. I want to serve the Lord. My gift is an expression of my love for him. That's not what you give for. You give out of, uh, because you feel it's required of you. You give because you want to impress others. You want to look good on the outside, but you're full of corruption. You're not dealing with the real issues, what Jesus is saying. He says, and you focus on the minors and you may miss the majors. Look at verse 42. But woe to you Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet you disregard the important things, justice and love of God. So here's what they do. They have this backyard garden. How many of you have a backyard garden? You have all sorts of herbs in it and stuff like that. A few of you? So we do. We have basil, we have chives, and all sorts of little things. <clears throat> and we do lots of cooking, and uh, so we have fresh stuff, right? So they go out there and they sip some mint. There's 10 leaves on it. Better set one aside for the priest. We go out there with chives. You clip 10 stalks of chives. Better make sure you set one of those apart. Boy, you make, you make sure you give a tenth of every single thing. They were all about that. But was it, what was not in their heart was to do the work of God in loving him and doing justice and showing compassion to those who needed compassion. And you're gonna see that in Luke chapter 15 as we get further in the text. So you're all about the minor things. You want to give, you know, 10% of your herbs to, to the, great. But let's don't miss the real things. Let's don't miss the big things. The things, what does God require of us? And Micah, what does he say? What does God require of us? That we would do righteously, do justly. That we do all things as an image of God who loves all mankind. That's what you should be focusing on. He continues with his rebuke. His third rebuke is in verse 43. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. The reason why you love being a Pharisee is all the, all the feedback that you give as you walk in the marketplace. Hey, Pastor, oh, it's good. And you, you, you like being treated so special. That's what it's all about. It's not because you have a love for God. You love the, the, the applause and the praise of men. You're also full of corruption. Look at verse 44. Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs, and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. In Matthew 23, Jesus says, you're like whitewashed tombs, full of dead men's bones. This is taking it a step further. You're like a hidden tomb, full of dead men's bones. People walk over you unknowingly, but when they do that, they defile themselves Part of the defilement is, is to keep themselves pure from touching anything that's dead. But when they hang around you, they defile themselves. You're like a hidden tomb. People don't realize the corruption that they're getting from you. After hearing all these things, there's another group of people. And the lawyer is saying, and look at verse 45. One of the lawyers said to him in reply, teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. Because the lawyers and the scribes are part of the religious, um, uh, the religious groupings in these communities. And Jesus has things to say to them. He has similar rebukes. He's, he, he looks at them. Look at verse 46. It says, Woe to you lawyers as well, for you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear. 
So here's the rebuke of, of the lawyers. Man, you weigh people down with burdens. You give them no relief. Here's what Jesus is referring to. to keep, just as an example, to keep the Sabbath, one of the questions was, what can I do on the Sabbath without breaking the Sabbath? And they had a whole list of rules and guidelines as to how far you can walk, whether you can carry your blanket or not carry it, um, what, what was allowable, what, what wasn't allowable. And just on the issue of carrying things, here's an example of this. Couldn't carry it like this, so you couldn't carry like a, a basket of goods like this, that was work. You couldn't carry anything like this, that was, that was work. What wasn't work and what you could carry is you carried on the back of your hands or on the tops of your feet. And you had to make sure that you could only walk just a few miles, not going beyond that. They had so many rules and regulations, folks, none of us could ever have kept it. And much like what we've even seen in our day, there's a lot of folks that make a lot of rules, but they don't even themselves keep it. And that's what Jesus is referring to. He says, you're all about telling everybody to wear a mask, but you don't wear a mask. How come I have to wear a mask? Remember those days? That's what Jesus was dealing with here. You would have all these lawyers and scribes who are making all of these rules, but they themselves were not get, doing anything to help people to even live these, and they weren't living it themselves. But it even goes worse than that. Look at verse 47. It says, woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. So you are witnesses and approve the deeds of your father because it was they who killed them, and you build their tombs. What's going on? Again, when you look at Matthew 23, it helps fill in this blanks. Because they were all about building these incredible monuments to, people, to prophets that had been martyred in the past, as though that was a glorious thing. And they were saying as they built these things, if I lived back in those days, I would never have been one of those that would have thrown the stone to have killed Zechariah. Not me. I'm better than my forefathers. And I, come, and I and as dis display my appreciation of these prophets were building these big old sepulchers. But he says, man, you're just as bad as your grandpa. You're just as bad as your great, great, great uncle. You're just like them. And that is seen in verse 54. Because when Jesus leaves, what are they doing? They're doing exactly what their ancestors did. They're beginning to plot how they can take Jesus out. They're grumbling and complaining. They were no different. That's what Jesus is critical of here. They were no better than their ancestors. And the worst offense is looking at verse 52. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge you yourselves did not enter, and you hinder those who are entering. It says, you know all about the word, but you make it so difficult to understand you put the keys right up here, and people can't even reach them. In fact, you add to their condemnation. You make it so impossible that they have no hope. And that's my concern here today, is that as I would teach here today, as you would see the word, man, you would see that, boy, the Lord is near today. So what did the Pharisees and the lawyers and the scribes get wrong? They had a wrong impression of who God was, so what did they get wrong? Let me share with you four things. One of the things they got wrong is found in Psalm 51, 17, and Isaiah 1, 11 through 17, is that what they got wrong is that a broken and contrite heart trumps sacrifice. They thought that if I want to find favor with God, all of these rules I needed to keep. And what you'll see in the passage in Isaiah is that what God's really wanting is a broken and contrite heart. That's what David says in Psalm 51. So God, it's not the blood of bulls and goats that you want. That's not what you want. I mean, how does that benefit anything if my heart's not right before you? What you're really looking for is a broken heart. 
a heart of repentance. That's what you're looking for. Not all this outside stuff. And so if you're here today, and folks, this is important for us too because there's so many of our friends that think they gotta get themselves really good and clean before they can come to Jesus. They gotta make some really lifestyle change before they can, before they can become acceptable, before they even can come to church. And Jesus said, no, that's not what I'm looking for. What I'm looking for is a broken heart. That's what I'm looking for. That's what my ear is attentive to, a broken, and the, and the Pharisees got that wrong. They thought it was all about the sacrifice. It wasn't. They also missed the fact about the holiness of God and our good works. And they thought somehow uh, all of these things, the, the tithing of the mint and rue was beautiful before the Lord. But the, the word says, the Old Testament says, all of your good works are like filthy rags. In today's commentary, it'd be all of your good works are like dirty laundry. And we have a whole bunch of friends and family members. And, and if you're here today, if you somehow think that, that when, on the day of judgment, God's gonna look at all of your good stuff that you've done and look at it and say, hey, that's a, that's a pretty good pile of stuff you got there. That's a big pile. In fact, that, let's put that on a scale. Let's just see how that weighs itself out. <laughs> and we so misunderstand the gravity of our sin and the weight of our sin. And God's word is true, is that all of our good works, as impressive as they are, like filthy, dirty laundry before a holy and righteous God. And the Pharisees were missing that. They thought their good works were pleasing to God, smelled good to God. And they, their heart wasn't there. They misunderstood the holiness of God. They needed a savior and they didn't think they needed to be saved. That's where they were missing it. Third thing, what they missed, they missed that the greatest need was for new birth rather than political salvation. They were thinking, what we really need the Messiah to do is get rid of these Romans. Man, if they can just get rid of the Romans and we can establish our kingdom again and the Messiah will reign like David did, boy, we're gonna be, we're gonna be set. And Jesus said, that's not the salvation that you need. You need to be born again. So when Nicodemus came to Jesus in John chapter three, he was wondering if Jesus was the Messiah. Was he gonna be the political savior? And Jesus spoke to Nicodemus and says, Nicodemus, you need something more than that. You need to be born again. And here's this religious scholar and he's looking at himself and I don't know how old he was, 50, 60, 70 years old. He's looking at this thing and says, since a youth, I have kept all the law. I've done everything possible to be a good Jewish leader. How do I need to be born again? I was born right. Uh, I'm not like this Roman general over here. He needs, to be, he needs to be born like a Jew. And Jesus says, no, flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God. There needs to be a spiritual, supernatural rebirth, Nicodemus, because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And that's true for every one of us. There needs to be a, a new birth a work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts that begins changes us from the inside out. And the Pharisees were missing it, yet it was right in front of them when they would look at the Old Testament. And they were missing it. And the last thing that they were missing is that God is compassionate and he's unwilling to, for any to perish. They saw God, that he was a God of judgment. The only ones that were prospering, God loved is from their perspective. They didn't realize that every one of them needed him too. And they, they thought that, boy, God just can't wait to squash the Romans or anybody else. That God was not a God of compassion, but he was a God of judgment. Maybe you are here today, and I mean, that's your concept of who God is. 
is that he wants to judge you. He wants to condemn you. And his word tells he takes no delight. He takes no delight in anyone perishing. He's not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to know him. So here's a question I want you to think about. What do you think God thinks about when he thinks about you? Let that set for you just a moment. What do you think God thinks about when he thinks about you? Let me give you three things. This comes out of Luke chapter 15. I'll let you read it later. In Luke chapter 15, verse 1, Jesus is being criticized because of who he's hanging out with. And the Pharisees are very, very critical. And they ask his disciples, why does Jesus hang out with tax gatherers and sinners? And Jesus said, let me tell you a story. I'm going to tell you three stories. And he tells these three stories that we might know the heart of God. And he told these three stories to the Pharisees so that they might know the heart of God. But here's what those three stories are about. The first one is about a shepherd who had a who had hundred sheep. And one evening as he counted them, one was missing. So what do you think about, what do you think God thinks about when he thinks about you? If you're far away, he misses you. That's what the story's about. You think, what's the deal with one lamb? It meant the world to that shepherd. It means the world to God that one is missing. He wants his family to be complete. And he takes those 99, he puts them in a pen, makes sure that they're safe and well, and then he goes out risking his own life to find that one lamb that's caught in a thicket somewhere, is in a place where it ought not to be, to bring it back. And when he brings it back, he tells everybody about it. And Jesus says to these Pharisees, and let me tell you the, the, the incredible rejoicing that play, takes place in heaven when one who is lost is found. Folks, if you're far away from God, he misses you. And he can't wait to throw a party when you come back to him. The second story is about a woman who has 10 coins. They're coins that her father gave to her, thinking that someday she might need some financial help. And those coins were very, very important to her. And they weren't just a decorative headdress, which is what they became, but it was so much more than that. And one morning she wakes up and she looks at her headdress to get put on, one's missing. One's missing. And the Bible tells us she turned her house upside down. She swept every corner looking for that one coin, told her neighbors to be praying for her, I gotta find this coin. And when she finds it, boy, incredible joy and celebration breaks out. And Jesus says again, let me tell you again, that there is just such, there's gonna be such a great party when one that is lost is found. And so if you're lost, Jesus, he'll find you. He'll come after you. He'll keep reaching out to you. He'll keep knocking on your door. He'll keep calling you because not only does he miss you, but he wants you back. And lastly, the third story is that if you've run away, he's waiting for you. This is the best story of the three. It's the story of a father who had two sons. And one son, the youngest, was tired of being with his dad. Give me my inheritance. I want to go make, make it on my own. And he leaves, and the time that he leaves, and it's really important when you look at these stories to understand that while these stories seem compacted, there's a lot of time between a lot of these verses. The son was gone far enough and long enough that the father thought his son had died. So it wasn't just that the son was gone for like a week or two weeks or maybe even a few months. He was gone possibly years. But the father kept waiting, kept praying, kept hoping that the son would come home. And one day, even after waiting a long, long time, the father is still looking and he sees in the distance and right away he knows in his heart, that's my boy. 
And I just picture this fat old dad <laughs> picking up his coat, running as hard as he could, huffing and puffing until he gets this to his son and he grabs him and he hugs him. He doesn't stand back and say, okay, tell me what you did. Tell me you're sorry. You don't hear any of that. He loves his son. And he tells his other son, hey folks, hey, I thought he was dead. And my son who I thought was dead and gone is alive and home. We're gonna celebrate. And folks, <laughs> that's our heavenly father. If you run away from him, he's waiting for you. Can't wait for you to come home. Because the last point of this is that he loves you. Oh, he loves you with an everlasting love. That means that it, it won't stop, it won't run out. No matter what you do, how far you've gone, where you have been, God's passion, his love for you, he's not wanting you to perish. He wants you to enjoy a relationship with him. He wants you back home. And I share these things because there could very well be someone here today who's been running away. You have a praying mother and father, and maybe today's the day that those prayers would be answered. Maybe today you have come here and you've just been heavy loaded with sin. Today's the day to find freedom and joy. His arms are open wide. And in a moment, our altar room will be open for people that are there not to judge you or to criticize you, but to love you and to pray for you. That you might find the freedom and joy that comes in a relationship with Christ, not a religion, a relationship with your heavenly father who made you and love you. I want to close with this prayer. It's found in Ephesians chapter three. Our prayer, and this would be our prayer for all of our pastors, that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love would be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Wouldn't that be something? That we would pray today, Lord, would you fill me up full of you? Think that'd make a difference in your life, in our lives? If we're filled full of the Holy Spirit as we leave here today, knowing that God wants to work in us and he wants to work through us as we have a relation with him. Because folks, there's a whole bunch of folks, including our near neighbor, our actual neighbors, the ones that we work with, that need to see Jesus because they have a wrong idea of the Pharisees as to what God is like. And if you were to ask them, what do you think God thinks about when he thinks about you? If they were to be honest with you, you'd be shocked at what they would say. And you would say, that's not what he thinks about. That's not all what he thinks about. Let me show you Luke chapter 15. This is what he thinks about. If you're, if you're lost, he misses you. If you're far away, he will find you. And his doors always open up to you. Isn't that cool? Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this blessing, Lord, of your word, the encouragement of your word. And I pray, Father, that you would work it deep into our hearts, that we might be you, your people, a wonderful reflection of your grace and your love. And so, Lord, if there's anyone that's here today that's been far away, may today be this great day where they come near and all heaven will rejoice. To the one who comes that's heavily burdened and will cast their cares upon you, that they would find freedom and all heaven would rejoice. Lord, what a great day this could be as we experience your incredible work through the power of your Holy Spirit in our lives. I thank you and bless you. And Lord, may your word bear fruit today. In Jesus' name, amen.